Wonderful to welcome you. Ooh, nearly now. It's wonderful to welcome you this evening to St James's Church Centre uh, for the second of our Lent talks, looking at living justly in the world. And we're really pleased this evening to welcome Dave Bookless, uh, who is an international speaker of creation care. Uh, he's director of theology for a Russia International, um, and it's just really a joy to welcome him. And some of you kind of have links already with that because um, we support a Russia, particularly uh, Kimmy Haley. Who uh, work very closely with Dave in Southland. So it's really lovely to have that kind of connection from uh, this parish uh, to Dave and his work and to welcome him this evening. Uh, just a, a note about we've got a book stall which is uh, here every week. Um, Dave has also bought uh, some of his own books here this evening. I'm sure he'd be happy to sign them for you if you would like to buy one of those. And there's some uh, leaflets and pamphlets and things for you to have a look at as well and to, and to take if you would like to. Um, Note about the, uh, the kind of format of the evening will be as last week, but we'll have Dave speaking to us for about half an hour. Uh, then we'll break for tea and coffee and uh, discussion around our tables. And then we'll kind of come back together for the final sort of 20 minutes for um, opportunity for comments and any questions you might have following on from Dave's talk. Um, so hopefully that's clear. Uh, tea and coffee will be brought to you during the coffee break along with uh, nibbles as well. <laughs> uh, and finally, uh, there are some feedback forms on your table, so if you have got any uh, sort of feedback you'd like to give uh, this evening, then please feel free to do that, and there are more uh, on the table just in the lobby there if you don't have enough. So, without further ado, I'll hand over to Dave, who we're very pleased to welcome. Thank you, Hannah. Is my mic working? Can everybody hear me? Yes. Great, that's really good. It's great to, to be here. It's good to hear your reaction to nibbles, <laughs> especially in Lent. So um, I'm going to go quite rapidly um, in this first section. So um, apologies if I go quite fast, but do ask questions later to, to help clarify things as we go. So our theme this evening is living justly in a changing environment. When I was a child, the first film I ever went to see was The Jungle Book. And uh, my favourite song from the Jungle Book was The Bare Necessities of Life. I won't attempt a rendition of it now, you'll be glad to know. But Balu the Bear and Mowgli joining together. And life seemed very simple. It all was about the bare necessities of life. A few years ago, I took my daughters to see a more recent Disney Pixar film, which uh, was the story of Buzz Lightyear and Toy Story and the phrase, to infinity and beyond. And I suddenly started thinking about that link from the simplicity of the bare necessities of life to the ambition of to infinity and beyond in one lifetime. And it was a reminder to me of just how fast our world is changing. As we think about a changing environment, we could spend the whole evening digesting bad news, talking about climate change, food security, desertification, population growth, biodiversity loss, pollution and waste, water stress, energy production, overconsumption and deforestation. Yeah, I've got that off my chest now, so we're not going to look at all of those in detail, you'll be relieved to know. Um, but I'm going to try and start with a bit of an overview of some of the situation. Uh, and introduce you to this phrase, planetary boundaries. It was one that was coined um, just less than 10 years ago by a bunch of, of scientists at Stockholm's um, Centre for Resilience. Um, and 
and they've produced a number of articles in the journal Science and in the journal Nature as well on this theme of planetary boundaries. And the idea behind it is that as human beings, we need a safe operating space on planet Earth. We need to put boundaries beyond which we dare not go if we are going to have a livable world and leave behind a livable world for future generations. So that's the basic concept of planetary boundaries. And what they've attempted to do is look at a whole lot of areas of where human activity is affecting this planet and to try and work out what are we doing and where should the boundaries be in a whole lot of different areas. So you get what's sometimes called a donut. It doesn't look much like a donut to me. Um, but you get this sort of model with different sections. Looks more like an orange from that point of view. Or a grapefruit. Um, so you've got climate change. You've got novel entities with a big question mark. I like that one. That's basically strange things that scientists dream up and release into the atmosphere. Uh, and we don't quite know what they're going to do. We've got ozone depletion, which of course was the big worry back in the 80s. Uh, not so much now, because we actually took action on that globally. We've got atmospheric aerosol loading, all the nasty stuff we pump into the atmosphere. We've got ocean acidification. We've got nitrogen and phosphorus and what those are doing to the soil, particularly from fertilisers, um, going into the soil and into the water supply. We've got land system change. We've got biosphere integrity, which is a complicated way of saying what's happening to life on Earth. And you'll see that in two or three of these areas, we have gone not only into the yellow or amber warning area, we've gone into the red danger area already. And in several other areas, we don't yet have enough evidence. There are great big question marks there. We don't really know what our impact is. So this is an attempt to have a good, integrated and honest scientific look at the issues. And I want to just kind of home in on one or two of those sounds uh, in a bit more detail. And I want to start with biodiversity loss, the loss of other species that we share this Earth with, and the loss of the biomass, the total of life on Earth. According to WWF, the World Wide Fund for Nature, and ZSL, which is London Zoo, uh, they produced a Living Planet report a couple of years ago, and they've calculated that since 1970, my guess is that's within the lifespan of most of you here, probably not Anna, I don't know, but most of you here, and, and me, um, within our lifetimes, there's been a 52% decline in wildlife populations. That doesn't mean that we've lost 52% of species, it's a 52% decline in populations as a whole. We've lost half the world's wildlife in our lifetimes, is the headline from that. And it's quite uneven, so terrestrial, earth creatures, mammals, um, we've lost nearly 40%. Freshwater, amphibians and reptiles, they're the most sensitive, the most delicate, and we've lost more than three quarters. And fish, marine creatures, fish and whales, marine mammals as well, we've again lost nearly 40%. Um, so there's a really significant impact from our human uh, impact on the Earth. And this is what WWF said. In less than two human generations, population sizes of vertebrate species have dropped by half. These are the living forms which constitute the fabric of the ecosystems which sustain life on Earth. They're the barometer of what we're doing to our own planet, 
our only hope. We ignore their decline at our peril. So that's biodiversity. I then want to look very briefly at deforestation. The map on the screen is a, a coastal province of Brazil, South Bahia, as it was in 1945. And you can see almost the whole province there was covered in forest, uh, as so much of South America was um, back just at the end of World War II. Here is the same map by 1990. Let me just go back again and then forward again, just as a reminder of that. Now that's one province, and that has been replicated over massive areas of South America, over huge parts of Southeast Asia, increasingly in Africa as well. The last great forests are already being decimated. Not primarily to feed the poor, but primarily to feed the rich with more meat and, and to uh, grow products to feed animals, uh, farmers. Those are the main reasons uh, why the deforestation is happening at quite such a rate. And then the nitrogen cycle. I don't want to get technical tonight, partly because I'll lose myself. Um, but uh, what we are doing by putting an awful lot of nitrates uh, in terms of particularly artificial fertilisers into the soil is changing the delicate balance of the soil of farming areas all over the world. We've got into the mindset that soil is a commodity, that you can do what you like with. But as any farmer knows, and as any soil scientist knows, and as certainly the people of the Old Testament knew, soil is not a commodity, soil is a community. It's comprised of billions of tiny little microorganisms that are interdependent and rely on each other. And its health relies on the relationships between all those complex creatures. And we're destroying that fertility in many places. We're getting short-term increases in produce through putting in lots of nitrogen-based, oil-based fertilisers. But long-term, we're reaping the results of, of tragedy in many parts of the world. And then climate change, which again, I don't want to look at in a huge amount of detail. But according to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, if the world's temperature were to rise by about three degrees, and the Paris Agreement, which you'll remember happened at the end of 2015, is trying to keep it below two, but very few scientists believe we can actually do that. But if the temperature rises by three degrees, then this is a map of roughly what will happen to crops all over the world. And basically the red areas is where it's really bad news. And it's where most of the world's population live. And the green areas are where, for a generation or so, it'll actually be quite good news. Areas which were too cold to grow crops, you will be able to grow crops more effectively. Parts of Canada, parts of Scandinavia and Russia, for instance, and parts of the cold parts of China. But you can see that where most of the world's poor live, across Africa, South America, and South Asia, um, it's going to be devastating, with a greater than 50% drop uh, in crop yields in many parts of the world. <clears throat> and the headlines on climate, I'm afraid, just make for very, very depressing reading. According to the World Health Organization, by 2030, so only less, you know, a decade and a bit away, uh, maybe 300,000 people a year will be dying as a result of climate change. 
Climate change doesn't kill people directly, but it does indirectly. So we've all heard on the news this week about the famine in Nigeria and Somalia and South Sudan, and that's partly caused by conflict in those countries. But the underlying cause is a massive drought right across the Sahara and the Sahel, the semi-desert area south of the Sahara. And that drought is now going on for years at a time. And the Sahel, the semi-desert, is spreading south year by year, forcing people off the land. As a result, we get environmental refugees. So many of those who get on boats from North Africa to try and get into Europe, some are fleeing conflicts, like in Syria. Many have been forced off their land by climate change and are simply looking for somewhere else to live. Heat waves are going to get more frequent and intense, but so are storms. Um, climate chaos is a good description for this. Extreme drought uh, will affect 10% of the planet, where currently it affects 2%, a five-fold increase. Up to a million species could go extinct this uh, century. Um, all the references for this are there. I'm not going to go into them in detail. And the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change are talking about the dangers of abrupt and irreversible climate change. In other words, where we just can't turn the clock back, where it's running so far out of control. Tipping points, such as the melting of the permafrost um, across much of the Arctic area, where so much carbon dioxide and methane are stored in the frozen ground. And if they're released, it will just accelerate climate change. Uh, in, a, in a drastic way. Ah, I'm afraid it gets even worse. Consumption. What we consume as ordinary consumers, and there's nothing wrong with consuming, it's how we live. We all have to eat. We all have to have electricity, etc. But the amount that we're consuming is causing problems. If everybody lived like we do in Britain, then we would need three planets for the whole world to have a lifestyle like ours. So there is a, there's an issue of justice for the poor straight there. That if the people of Africa, if the people of India, if the people of South America want a lifestyle like they see on television, then we're going to need three planets. And we haven't got three planets. So something's got to contract if others are going to be able to, to develop further. And it gets even worse when you look at the extremes of wealth. Believe it or not, everybody in Britain is in the world's richest 20%. Everybody. Even if you're on the state pension and nothing else, you're in the world's richest 20%. Partly because we've got things like the NHS uh, as well to help us out. And we as the world's richest 20% consume 16 times as much of the Earth's resources per person per year as the world's poorest 20% many of whom live in sub-Saharan Africa. Now, I find that a really shattering statistic in lots of ways, a very sobering one. one. One of its implications is that when we start talking about population growth and the fact that populations are still growing in some of those poor countries, actually that's a bit of an excuse for us not to face the real issue. Because it takes 16 babies born in Malawi to consume what one baby born here will consume. So consumption, I would suggest, is at least as big an issue, and moreover, it's an issue we can do something about, 
whereas population is an issue, but it's a one largely that others have to do something about. And, and all the experts say that the way to tackle population growth is actually to rise people out of extreme poverty. Because when people aren't in extreme poverty and wondering if their babies will live to their first birthday, they stop having so many babies. So extreme poverty and actually educating mothers, educating women, is the other major way of tackling overpopulation. So that's, that's enough of the bad news. Um, that's just kind of to put us in context. Let's now begin to think about this uh, and its ethical implications for us. How do environment and poverty link with each other? This is what Elaine Storkey says, uh, talking about, particularly about climate disasters. It, inevitably, the poor are picking up the tab. The poor are there when the hurricane hits, when the tornado comes, when freak weather conditions are there. 98% of those killed and affected by natural disasters come from developing countries. And that really came across clearly to me a few years ago when there was a cyclone that hit Burma, Myanmar, the same week as a um, hurricane hit Florida. And the two were of the same magnitude. These were storms of the same size. Now, the, the cyclone that hit Myanmar, nobody knows exactly how many died, because many of them were amongst the poor, many of them were amongst the Rohingya gypsies who the government don't even recognise as people. But the estimate is perhaps 200,000 died in total as a result of that cyclone. Um, partly as a direct result, partly through the diseases that, that spread afterwards. In Florida, less than 10 died from a storm of exactly the same size. And the reason why less than 10 died was, in one word, wealth. In Florida, there were early warning systems, there were good roads, People could drive, people had freezers, they had shelters, they had well-built houses, there was medical care, there weren't outbreaks of, of diseases that are easily preventable. And this is how we live in an unjust world, where the same storm can cause devastation to the poor, um, but leave the rich relatively unscathed. This is what a, a very good um, Kenyan botanist and lovely Christian says about this whole issue about how the poor depend so immediately on the natural world, on the environment. The rural poor depend directly on the natural resource base. This is where their pharmacy is. So if you're poor and you're ill, you go and find the medicinal plant that will deal with your illness. This is where their supermarket is. They harvest food straight from the land. This is in fact their fuel station, wood, charcoal. Their power company, their water company. What would happen to you if all these things were removed from your local neighbourhood? Therefore, we really cannot afford not to invest in environmental conservation because the poor get affected most directly. Now, what I want to do very rapidly in the rest of the time I've got, and I'm about halfway through, is look at six questions and try and get us thinking about these questions. You can come back to these and discuss them a little bit more in the discussion time if you like. Who are the world and its resources for? What is development for? It's a word that's banded around a lot. Why do we, or how do we value species other than human? What's the worth of an elephant or a rhino or whatever? What is the scope of the gospel? 
Does it touch these issues? What is the scope of God's mission and of our mission as God's people? And finally, and most practically, how can we live justly in God's world? So six really big questions, and I'm going to go through them pretty quickly so that we can get to the last one, which is, is where the, the rubber hits the road, so to speak. So who are the world and its resources for? Well, theologically, they're not for us. They're for God. That's a really important point. Because I think as Christians, we often believe a half-truth. And the half-truth that God has given us this world to enjoy. Well, yes, he has lent us this world to enjoy, but it's actually God's, not ours. Psalm 24, which is a very familiar psalm. The earth is the Lord's, and all that there it is, as the old version says. The planet belongs to God, not to us. Colossians 1 says that all things were made by Jesus, by him, and for him. All things were made for Jesus. So the oil, the gas, the fruit, the grain, everything was made ultimately for Jesus. We have it on loan. He's happy for us to use it. But not. it doesn't belong to us. And then Leviticus 25, words spoken to the people of Israel in their promised land. And you'd ever, you'd think if ever there was a case of the land belonging to people, surely it was Israel in the promised land in the Old Testament. But God says the land must never be sold on a permanent basis, for the land belongs to me. You are only foreigners and tenant farmers working for me. Now, very interestingly, the one politician who seemed to understand this in my lifetime was Margaret Thatcher. She said on many occasions that we have a repairing leasehold on planet Earth. We don't have the freehold. We have a repairing leasehold on planet Earth. In other words, it's our obligation to hand it on to our descendants in at least as good a state as we found it. Now, whether she knew it or not, I think she was spouting very good theology uh, at the time. You don't have to agree with all of her politics. <laughs> but, uh, so that's the first question. The earth doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God, fundamentally. Secondly, what is development for? We all support organisations like Christian Aid or Tear Fund or CAFOR who do good development work. Oxfam, of course. Um, and Oxfam actually came up with this, this donut which they've taken from the, um, the model that, that we looked at earlier uh, with the different sections looking at climate change and freshwater use and everything else. And they've said, look, there's that donut in the middle, which is the safe area. If you go nearer to the centre, then life is simply unlivable. You don't have enough. If you go beyond the outside of that green area, then you're using too much. The whole world needs to live within that band of safety. And the job of development agencies, Oxfam would say, is to help the poor move from the absolute dependence into this safe green area, but also to help the rich give up some of what they have and move back into the green area so they're living more sustainably. So development needs to work in two directions. It's not about constant exponential growth that lie that our politicians and economists keep trying to tell us to believe in, that everything is about growth. 
I'm afraid in the natural world that only things that grow forever are cancers. Everything else has its seasons where it stops growing and rests. We need to get away from that kind of view. We need a safe and just space for humanity with inclusive and sustainable economic development. We need to have measures that don't just look at gross domestic product, GDP, but look rather at human flourishing. Uh, and I would argue that actually human flourishing isn't enough because it's only about humans. We'll come on to that in a second. But for instance, there is one country in the world so far that has said we're going to jettison GDP as a measure of how we're doing as a country. Instead, we're going to have a happiness index. We're going to look at this quite scientifically, but we're going to look, for instance, at education, whether people are being educated better than they used to be. We're going to look at health. We're going to look at mental health. And we're going to look at how people feel about the world. We're going to look at the quality of nature, because that's known to contribute to happiness. And those are the things we're going to measure, not how the economy is doing. Because the economy is meant to serve those things, not to be an end in itself. That country is Bhutan, by the way. Uh, in a small Himalayan dictatorship, you can get away with that kind of measure. It's harder in our big democracies, but it's a great idea. And here's a different model of what development is for. And I would suggest a much more real one and a much more biblical one. Which is that the economic domain, which at the moment dominates everything, is really meant to be a servant of the social domain, a subset. In other words, the economy is there to serve people. At the moment, we're told that people are there to serve the economy. You know, education, I've got children still at school, and education has turned not into how to learn about this amazing world that we live in, and how to develop yourself and your gifts. It's become how to be a cog in a machine, how to get qualifications that mean you can contribute to the economy so that we can compete better than other countries. People are now serving the economy rather than vice versa. It's twisted. So the economy is, should be there to serve society. And society, human society, is only a subset of nature. We're not the whole of what God made. We're part of it. We belong within the ecological domain. We can't survive without it. Third question. And this brings us on to those other creatures. How do we value non-human species? And I've got three diagrams here that are three different ways of looking at this. Um, ego, eco, and theo. Now, the egocentric view is the one that says human beings are top of the pile. We are the most special creature. After all, we were made in the image of God, weren't we? So we're top of the pile, and all of the rest of it is just there to serve us. Notice how in that model the man is at the top and the woman is somewhere below him next to the blue whale. Because often that is how that model ends up. And Christianity has often subscribed to that model and said that's what Genesis surely means when it says we're made in the image of God. They forget that Genesis also says we're made from the dust of the earth. The second model is more about the dust of the earth. It's an ecocentric model. It basically says all of nature needs to thrive. You can't say that one part is more important than another. So man and woman are there in amongst all the other creatures. The difficulty with that model is that we have no right 
to intervene or make changes for our benefit or for anything else's benefit, really. If we're not made in the image of God, if we're just one randomly evolved species amongst all the others, and if we're the one causing all the problems, then maybe the world would be better off without us. And there are scientists seriously suggesting that today. I've heard it on the BBC, on wildlife programmes. That, you know, maybe the Earth will get rid of us, we become the virus species. So that's the ecocentric view. And yet there are bits of the Bible that we've quite like that. Try reading the end of the book of Job. Try reading Psalm 104, where humans are quite marginal. And God is marvelling at biodiversity, at the variety of creatures. What I suggest we need is a theocentric model, which takes the best of the eco and the ego and rejects the worst of them. It recognises that human beings are unique, are special, but not in a way that's meant to dominate and destroy the rest of nature, but in a way that's meant to serve and preserve the rest of nature. We're the keystone species, not the least important, but the foundational one. God has called us to look after the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, as Genesis puts it. It's a theocentric model because it recognises that the whole of nature was made for God not for us. If you like, God so loved the world. And we'll come back to that. And as I said, there are bits of the Bible that really have this model there, that talk about the community of creation. Uh, they're very like those models of the ecological web uh, that scientists talk about now. Recognise how we're dependent and we're part of this amazing uh, world. I often find myself worshipping when I watch Dave Lavender documentaries. I don't know about you. Because they make me just think more about this extraordinary world that God has made. And how God reveals God's self through these extraordinary creatures and their relationships. And that brings us on to the fourth question. What is the scope of the Gospel? It's a question that I'd never thought about in these terms until um, some years ago. I certainly hadn't been brought up thinking like this in the churches I went to as a child and young person. But I started rereading the Bible, asking the question, what does this say about how God sees the whole of the earth and its creatures, not just me, and not just people like me? And let me give an example. Um, probably the most popular children's story in the whole of the Old Testament would be the story of Noah's Ark, because it's got everything that children like. It's got the colours... Um, you can learn the colours of the rainbow. It's got all the animals, uh, and the, you can learn to count in twos. Um, it's like every good film for children. It's got mild threat, but a happy ending. So it's a perfect children's story. But sadly, we often leave Noah in the Sunday school. And we forget that it's there to teach us as well. Because it's a story about God's purposes in judgment and salvation towards the whole of creation. When we see it like that, it's quite an eye-opener. Because just who gets saved? Very few people. Only Noah, his three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and their, their wives. So eight human beings get saved. Fourteen of nearly every other creature get saved. Seven pairs. And even the creatures that were unclean, creatures that would have been dangerous to Noah, that would have been no good for food, that were religiously taboo, they get involved. They get invited onto the ark as well. 
So they're not there for Noah's sake. They're there for God's sake. God simply says, so that their kind might continue upon the earth. And the rainbow, at the end of the story, is a sign of God's covenant, God's saving promise, with the whole creation. You, your descendants, and every living creature on the earth. Repeated six times in the Hebrew of Genesis 9. So that's the, one of the most favourite stories in the Old Testament. Well, what about the best-known verse in the whole New Testament, the whole Bible? John 3.16, favoured by evangelists down the centuries. God so loved the people that he gave his only son. That's what it says, isn't it? Well, that's, I've heard this preached on dozens of times, and that's how I've always heard it. It was only when I learned a bit of New Testament Greek that I discovered, somewhat to my surprise, that the word in John 3 is actually cosmos. God so loved the cosmos that he gave his only begotten son. So I talked to my lecturers, because I was at theological college at the time, and I read the commentaries, and they agree that in general, in both New Testament Greek and Classical Greek, cosmos means the whole created order. In certain contexts, it can have a narrow meaning. But John's Gospel is actually, right from verse 1, very clear that the significance of Jesus is cosmic. I mean, in John 1, 1, you know this from the Christmas uh, Nine Lessons and Carols, John starts rewriting the creation story. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John's rewriting the story of the universe in this person, Jesus. He has cosmic significance. He is the saviour of the world, not only of human beings. And that led me on to a long study, which I haven't got time to go into this evening, going right through the big themes of the Bible, looking at what they say about the place of the environment, the place of non-human creation uh, in the scriptures. And if you want to, to follow that, I've written it as a, as a short, shortish book called Planet Wise, and there are copies um, over there. It kind of goes through what the scope of the gospel is and what its implications are for us. Then the fifth question, what's the scope of mission? Um, ten years ago, I visited Nairobi in Kenya for the first time. And I took this photo because I was struck by the fact that you were almost more likely to see Bible verses or something like that, Jesus Christ is the Lord. You were almost more likely to see those up on a hoarding or a wall than you were things for Coca-Cola or Starbucks or McDonald's. Um, because Kenyans are an incredibly Christian people. More than 80% of the population of Kenya attends church more than once a month. Only that were true in this country. Um, and people believe they, they wear their faith on their sleeves. Jesus Christ is the Lord. Easy to see that. But I found Kenyan Christian leaders were saying to me, people will come to church because they want to get to heaven. But their faith is only skin deep in many cases. It's not transforming our country. Because when they go home, if they're a man, they might end up beating their wife and they don't realise that their faith means that they shouldn't do that. Or they may have an argument with their neighbour because they're of a different tribe and those tribal jealousies go back for centuries. Or they may be corrupt at work. Or they may be destroying the environment because they haven't linked their faith to those things. They think it's just about being saved and going to heaven. And what they said to me, what this picture demonstrates, is that Jesus Christ is the Lord. It isn't just something to say in church. You can see Jesus Christ is the Lord in the middle of the picture. This is the big picture. 
And there's the context for it, Nairobi 2007. The context of incredible wealth, people making their millions in Africa, but terrible grinding poverty as well. The context of corruption, the context of environmental destruction, and so on. And if Jesus Christ is to be Lord at all, then Jesus Christ must be Lord of all. A Christian must let their faith affect all of this. How they do business, how they do politics, how they see their neighbour of a different tribe or ethnicity, how they treat their husband or wife or children, how they treat the planet that belongs to God, not to us. The Gospel is meant to be good news for all of that. As Anglicans, we have something called the Five Marks of Mission, which the Global Anglican Communion has accepted. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with these, but they're excellent. And they're alongside evangelism, proclaiming good news, and disciple-making, and serving the poor, and justice, is number five. Striving to safeguard the integrity of creation, and sustain and renew the earth. Caring for the environment is part of our mission as Christians. And that's why it's right and proper that you as churches are supporting Kailan and Kim who work through CMS with Arosha in Southall. Uh, because that's part of God's mission and therefore of our mission in God's world. To put it another way, some people's understanding of mission is simply this, saving souls. Getting people off this planet and off to heaven when they die. And that's it. But Jesus never stopped with that. He was concerned about the poor, and about the sick, and about the prisoner. And so some people's understanding of mission has grown, rightly, to include not only saving souls, we don't forget that, but also human flourishing, and that's good. But it doesn't stop there, because that's only about human flourishing. I would suggest that a biblical understanding of mission needs to include all three of these dimensions the spiritual, the social, and the ecological. God cares about each of those, and I believe we're called to as well, at the local church level and beyond. And that brings me to our final um, thought. How can we live justly in God's world? And I'm just going to put up some dimensions where this can affect us. And in the discussion time, what I want you to do is, is think about what this means for you where you live. And some of these may not affect you, but most of them will affect all of us. So how can we live justly in God's world? First of all, on our knees, in our prayer life, in saying to God, where do you want me to start? Maybe if I need to make some changes in my lifestyle. This is where I'm not the person to tell you, oh, you shouldn't be driving, oh, do you have a green electricity supplier, oh, are you eating too much meat? Let God tell you. Pray and let the Spirit challenge you on where to start. And with open Bibles, because the Scriptures actually have a huge amount to say about these issues. Um, and as we read them, we need to look at that. But then in our lifestyles too, practically. So when we go around the supermarket, or when we do our online shopping, or when we pop to the village shop, however we do it, do we think Christianly about how we shop. I don't mean that we go, bless you, my friend, to everybody we meet. <laughs> I mean, but do we take into account 
our Christian values in terms of thinking, oh, that's cheaper, I'll just buy that, rather than thinking, I wonder what conditions that was made in. What was the life for that person like? And that's where things like fair trade are really important. But so are things like buying produce that's grown more locally, but hasn't therefore had to travel a long distance. And so are things like buying, for instance, meat that is either organic or uh, at least free range, where the animal has had a good life and hasn't been abused. So we as our family took a decision some years ago that we were only going to eat meat that was either organic or free range. And we would therefore, because we were on a bit of a budget, we would only eat meat a couple of times a week. And that has been good for our health. It's ended up with some of my daughters becoming complete vegetarians, which is fine. Um, but it's actually been an important part of our journey. So our lifestyles, and then our churches. And I, I would like to commend to you, and I have total bias in this, a programme called Eco Church, which a Russia UK launched just over a year ago um, at St Paul's Cathedral. And we're delighted that in its first year, Eco Church has now been taken up by more than 500 churches around the country. Uh, and it's a simple online programme where you can go and fill in a checklist and see how your church is doing in terms of creation care and work out a programme of, right, okay, that's where we are. We could do this. We need to do that. And then you can apply for a bronze award. Now, relatively easy to get. And if you really want to go for it, you can go for a silver award and a gold award. Um, so that's the Eco Church programme. It's excellent. It's simple. Uh, I really commend it to you. But don't try and make the vicar do it. Have a committee of people amongst the laity, led by someone on the PCC, to do it. And then at work. I recognise some of you are in the work of the retired, which is often just as busy, if not more, than uh, the paid work. But wherever we spend our time, we spend resources as well. Can we think about the carbon footprint, the electricity use, the transport, the paper use of however and wherever we spend our time. So a photocopy is just a symbol of that. And then in our local community, there are lots of people of goodwill out there who care about the planet, but who have the opinion that the church really isn't interested in this kind of thing. And they're often surprised and delighted if they find that we are. And it draws them in. They want to get involved. And we found where I live, I live in Southall, same as, as Kailan and Kim, so most of my neighbours are from other faiths, Sikh, Hindu, Muslim, uh, etc. Very few have no religion where we live. Everybody's pretty religious, nearly everybody. Um, but we found that working together, we, there's a thing called the Transition Network. It's, it's not a Christian-based thing. It's about local communities getting active around issues uh, of environment locally. And we've set up a transition south wall. We're a bunch of people from all sorts of different faiths. Kyle and I are both in the steering group of it. And we've done things like start local, start orchards in local parks, planting fruit trees and bushes and hedges now, so people can start reaping their own fruit in Southall, in urban London. And then finally, we can get involved nationally and internationally. Um, and of course, I recommend supporting organisations like Arusha as a way of doing that. And just to finish my bit, uh, illustration of how we do that is, is here in Kenya, where on the Kenyan coast we've been working for nearly 20 years in an area where there's a very threatened forest, 
the Arabuco Sokoki Forest, but where some very important wildlife lives that's found nowhere else on Earth. It's endemic to that forest now. And yet the forest was being threatened because people in the quite poor communities living around it were hunting bushmeat and were chopping down trees. And it seemed a lose-lose situation. But Arosha went there, started listening to people. When I say Arosha went there, it's all local Kenyans running it completely. Uh, and worked out that the reason why people were destroying the forest was not to feed themselves because they were subsistence farmers. It was actually to pay for school fees for their children. And they thought, I wonder if we can turn this round and make the, prof make the forest somewhere that pays for children to go to school, not by being destroyed, but by being looked after. And so they set up an ecotourism scheme, because lots of people go to the Kenyan coast for holidays. And what they did was set up a scheme, train local people in being bird guides and how to build walkways and hides and things like that. And now the profits from all of that go back into a bursary fund for the villages around the forest that pays for all the children from those communities to go to secondary school. And if they then graduate and want to go on to higher education, they get bursaries for that as well. And the scheme's now been running long enough that people have graduated, gone and trained as things like school teachers, and are now coming back and working in the community. And one or two of them have trained as conservationists and are now working for Russia. So looking after the forest is now actually paying for the well-being of the children. So it's a case of caring for the poor and caring for the planet together. And similarly, in Kampala in Uganda, um, we're working in an area on the edge of Kampala where one of the biggest slums in Uganda is. Uh, it's on an area, on the edge of an area of marshland and the Viji Swamp, um, which is, is very unhealthy. It's full of malarial mosquitoes. It also happens to be really good for wildlife. So there's things like that wonderful bird there, that bright red and black and yellow bird found there, called the Papyrus gonalek, if, if you want to know. Um, and the local community there were using the same water for drinking and for sewage, and it was malarial, and it was a, just a, a toxic mess, the whole area. And so Arusha began to go in there and say, well, what can we do? Let's at least see if we can have composting toilets so that then the, the, the waste material doesn't go straight into the swamp, but actually it's filtered through reed beds and it comes out as clean water the other end. Let's drill boreholes deep so that the drinking water is clean. And let's work to see if we can help local people have more sustainable incomes locally. Um, and let's study the wildlife and work out how this area can be managed so that people can live near to it and the wildlife can thrive. It's a very delicate balancing act. But so far, Arusha and Uganda have managed to do it well. And Arusha Uganda is, is, by African standards, absolutely extraordinary in that all of its leadership are women. And in an African, traditional African context, particularly the church, that is really unusual. So I'm going to finish here um, simply by putting those questions, those big six questions, up again. Uh, and leaving them there uh, while we have our tea and coffee um, so you can reflect on those a little bit and then we can come back and discuss well, how do we put this into practice? Thank you so much Dave, a really fantastic uh, talk and um, you've given us plenty to think about, plenty to discuss now um, so let's say thank you to Dave If you want to draw your discussions to a, to a close, but 
Um, really, now just an opportunity for any um, comments on what you've been talking about, or what Dave's been talking about, or any questions that you might have for Dave um, this evening. So, um, I will run around as best I can with a mic. Yeah, would you like to say something about organic food? Mm -hmm. I've not really been convinced that it was a good idea, but maybe you'd like to say why you think it is a good idea. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I understand free range eggs. I'm very sorry that the chickens are all having to be kept indoors these days. Yes, <laughs> yes. And I with that, would you like to talk a little about organic food? Yeah, I think organic is a complicated one. I, I don't want to, us to spend all, all evening on it. And what, as it's become more of a trendy thing in some circles to go organic, you've got the problem that, for instance, organic food may be imported from Eastern Europe by some supermarkets because it's got organic on its label. The certification may not be quite as good in some of those countries that it's coming from, and it's had to travel an awfully long way. And that may not be much better than buying non-organic produce that's grown much more locally. So it's not a simple or straightforward thing. Um, what I do think we need to do is move globally to a system of farming that is far less intensive in terms of the inputs of what we're putting into the soil in order to get stuff out. And, and it's not just me saying that. Um, the UN are saying exactly the same thing. That large-scale industrialised farming is actually disastrous for the poor and it's disastrous for the planet. Um, it makes a lot of profit for a very few people, but it is not the way to feed the world's hungry, the world's hunger. We can do that far more effectively by lots of small-scale farming, which tends to be far more organic. So for instance, rather than using you know, nitrogen-based, oil-based fertilizers and lots of artificial pesticides, to use mulch, compost, what farmers have used for generations of organic material is, is far better for the soil. It's far better for the crops. Uh, it's far better for you and your health as well. Um, I mean, there's increasing evidence that, that some of the resistance to diseases and antibiotics and things that we're now getting in society are linked to some of the chemicals that we're putting in to farming. So, so I think there's a lot of evidence that we need to move in that direction, whether or not it I don't think you have to be pharisaical about organic certification, but we need to move to a far less intensive way of growing up. Let's <coughs> make an observation as a keen uh, plant lover. Mm. You talk about the egocentric, ecocentric, theocentric. You're the only zoocentric. In all the species you talk about, Actually, animals. animals. Yeah, that's my own bias. You're quite right. <laughs> yes. I went to visit a lady yesterday whose grandmother had died. And the grandmother, when she was in the hospital, had been told by uh, the doctor that she could live for another two years if she gave up drinking, or she could live for six months if she didn't. She chose not to, and she died. She was 97, so it wasn't a good Is it going to make any difference? If I were to say, I'm going to sell my car and sell it, are we past the stage where 
not just as individuals, but even if, you know, even, even <laughs> as nations, that we can do something which is going to make any real difference? It, it's, a, it's a good question, and it's one I'm, I'm often asked. Um, I think I've got a couple of answers to it. One is to say that I think to do the right thing is always the right thing to do, whether or not it's going to make a difference. It's what, it's what it does to you as much as what it does to the situation that makes it important. Can I look my neighbour in the face? Can I look God in the face uh, in eternity if I haven't taken what I know to be the right choice in a particular matter? Um, so I think that's true. And then from, from what I'm told, although in terms of climate change, um, a certain amount of runaway climate change is I think now unavoidable. Are the next generations are going to suffer from the way we and previous generations have overused resources. But there's still quite a lot that can be done to make it less bad. And that's worth doing as well. So we can prevent some of the worst impacts. So we, it, at that level, it does make a difference. And, you know, it's, it's also this thing that, you know, pe people sometimes say, well, what's the point in us here changing are light bulbs when China is doing this, that, and the other, and, and so on. But we live in a very joined up world now, and the Chinese economy is largely built on creating products for us in Europe and North America. And, and actually, the Chinese economy is affected by what we do here in a very direct way. Um, and China is reaping the results now of climate change more quickly than many other countries. It's got some low-lying areas that are really being affected. It's got big areas of desertification. And as well as climate change, it's got massive problems of air pollution. Huge problems of air pollution, causing chaos in their cities. Um, and they are taking this very seriously. So they are now the, the fastest growing producers of clean energy globally. Whereas 10 years ago, they were investing hugely in coal-fired coal power stations. They've stopped that. They've even stopped ones that were half-built. And they're massively investing now in, in clean energy. So, so change is possible. Um, and what we do, you know, it's, I'm sure there were people who said to Will, Will, William Wilberforce when the campaign against slavery was happening, "What's what I, what I do? Is that going to make any difference? I treat my slave well. Um, <laughs> is it really going to make any difference?" Well, in the end, it does. Um, you know, what side of history we're going to be on if we want to make it on that scale? And we really, I think, do need to, to do the right thing, even if we can't see an immediate impact on it. A few of us went to a prayer meeting this morning, was working, and the topic of the starvation in the world in Sudan mm -hmm. and the like uh, was high in our minds. And we not only wanted to pray for those people, to know what we could do personally. And uh, the uh, general feeling was that a lot of the money that is given to these people gets into the wrong hands and uh, you know the people who are meant to be the beneficiaries don't actually receive the food that they so desperately need. And we were at a loss to know what to do about this. Uh, could you help us in that respect? Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult one. I mean, South Sudan is one of the most heartbreaking cases in the world, I think, at the moment, because there was so much optimism. So Sudan had suffered 
30 years plus of civil war. And when South Sudan became independent, there were such hopes that this would be a peaceful, independent country with quite a number of Christians. It's quite a, quite a strong Christian population in South Sudan. And now it's, it's torn apart by civil war. Um, she's largely ethnically based um, in, in Sudan. Um, and the civil war is exacerbated by this, this huge drought across the Sahel, as I said. Um, I think in a situation like South Sudan, there is some truth in what you say, but you can't be sure where things are going to go. Um, in many other places, I think that's, that's sometimes a myth that's peddled um, to, to stop us giving. Um, things have improved a huge amount in the last 10 or 20 years in terms of transparency, um, in terms of accountability. Um, so, for instance, money that's given through the, the major charities in this country that are part of the Disaster Emergencies Committee, so that includes Oxfam, Christian Aid, Tip, and all, all the big ones. Um, and any money that comes through DFID, the Department for International Development, is so carefully monitored now. There are cases where it won't get to the right people because of conflict, but the chances of it simply going to the wrong people because of corruption are now far less than they used to be. But I think Sudan at the moment may be an exception to that because it's just so bad in Sudan, uh, in South Sudan. And in many ways, I think the most practical thing we can do is pray for South Sudan at the moment because it, it seems to me it really does need a major spiritual breakthrough between the, the principalities and powers on both sides of the, the fighting that's going on there who are just careless about the lives of people and careless about what they're doing to the, the environment in what should be a very fertile country. Um, but it's, it's, it's a huge tragedy. Um, so pray, give through good major charities like Christian Aid Tear Fund, um, and if you have an MP who, who acts, then encourage them to say that the Department for International Development should be supporting good development and good aid in, in countries like South Sudan, uh, where they have, because it comes through the government, they have the ability to really control where it goes and to set the terms and conditions, and actually to influence what happens in those countries. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's probably all I can say on that. Thank you. May I add a bit, Francis? May I commend yeah, to you um, Medicine Sans Frontier, who were mentioned on the TV as being currently active in Nigeria with a framework ready to take, and appealing for more money to get more food right now. And they are doctors who give their time, give their time to help, and I think have a minimal structure of organisation. Yes, yes, they're a very good organisation. I may be a little bit in the minority with this questionnaire. Two years ago, I went back to work in the global corporate world. So, on a personal level, I'm looking at the list and thinking, okay, yes, 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 no, yes, yes. So, other than put my hands together and get on my knees, yeah. 
where can I, how can I influence anything to do with the excesses of resources being used in global corporate world? I, I think that's a really good question and, and thank you for asking it so honestly because I think it's you know it's so easy to feel yourself to just be a tiny cog in a vast machine who, who can't really make a difference. Um, a word of encouragement. Um, one of my colleagues, in fact, the person who founded Arosha more than 30 years ago in Portugal where it, it first began, um, a chap called Peter Harris. Um, he's now based back in this country um, and he having spent his life working to protect the environment in places around the world where it's been trashed, has decided to spend his last few years before retirement trying to, to do what he calls working upstream, looking at, well, what's driving the problems that are causing the environmental destruction? So often it is the unthinking policies of big banks, big investment bodies, big corporations, um, and where are those based? Well, a lot of them are based in the city of London. And who works for them? Well, actually, an awful lot of Christians, some in very senior positions in some of those institutions. And he had a few friends, you know, back from his student days who were already in that world, and they knew others. And so he started meeting once a month um, in the city with Christians who are in the city. Not to have, you know, there are plenty of Bible studies and prayer meetings that happen in the city, but, but these, these ones were focused on asking the hard questions about how does God feel about the results of our investment policies? How does God feel about what climate change is doing and what are the drivers behind that? Um, and to have those really quite tough discussions. And so those meetings have been going on for several years now. And who knows what impact they're having. They're certainly having a significant impact on those individuals, some of whom are in quite senior positions. And there is, in some quarters, there is a bit of a wind of change going on. Um, I happen to sit on a, a small group um, called the Environmental Working Group of the Church of England, which is a group that advises General Synod and the Archbishop of Canterbury on environmental issues. And we decided two or three years ago that we would talk to the church's investment bodies about what they do in this area because the church actually invests a huge amount of money mainly to pay the pensions of all the retiring clergy that's, that's where the biggest part of it goes and how do they invest that money for a long time they've had policies you know it mustn't go into drugs it mustn't go into arms it mustn't go into pornography so tick 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 but they, there were no policies for a long time on environment and climate change. And they've now got those policies in place. And they have now started a, a method of first engaging with the companies that they invest in. And they invest in nearly all the big companies, encouraging those companies to report on their environmental impact in a transparent way. And if they won't do that, then progressive divestment, removing resources from those, from those companies. So the church has decided to do that and has decided, well, if we're going to do that, I wonder if there are other big investing bodies that are also trying to do this ethically who want to join us. And the church has taken the lead and there is now a, a coalition that includes, and it, it's growing all the time and is, is becoming quite international. It includes you know, the Swedish churches, it includes quite a lot of universities now. 
It includes quite a lot of councils who also have big pension funds to invest, uh, and quite a lot of other bodies, and it's, it's, it's really snowballing, who are coming together and saying, we insist on transparency, and if we don't get transparency and know what impact you're having, and you're having a bad impact, we are going to divest from you. And the big companies are sitting up and listening. So, so it's, it's a good news story. It's, it's not one that's reached the headlines much so far. Uh, and, remarkably, the Church of England actually took the lead in this happening. And has done it not in an aggressive way, but in saying, we want to work with you to help you to change. But if you won't change, then we will, we will invest somewhere else. Um, and so that's, 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 I think, a good thing that's happening. Uh, I, I think, you know, in, I, I don't know your context, but I think I would say it's surprising the impact. You know, you don't have to be all kind of, you know, stand up and say, well, I'm a Christian and therefore... It, it can just be the little questions you ask, the conversations you have, you know, that, do we have to leave all those lights on all the time? Um, could we have a policy on this? Um, finding who the friendly voices are in your workplace who share values. They may not share faith, but they may share values where you can then work together on things. Uh, and it, it's amazing the impact that that can have. Um, so be encouraged. Thank you. Thank you very much.